Welcome to part two of our chat with Jeff Duncan Andrade. If you have not listened to part one, we invite you to do so. You will thank us later. Jeff's perspective on equity and his passion for serving all students is powerful. Leaders and educators, we hope you enjoy. Ladies and gentlemen, educators, leaders, welcome to Leader Chat. My name is Jeff Rose, and today I'm introducing what is part two of our conversation with Jeff Duncan Andrade. If you listen to part one, you may remember that Jeff made some very poignant points relative to his perspective on schools, teaching, and learning. One thing he actually mentioned was schools do to people instead of with people. And then he goes on to give some uh, very specific and solid recommendations. We got on a roll and therefore decided to create a part two, which is what I'm introducing to you right now. This is clearly pre-recorded. But I want to mention a couple of things before we jump into the conversation with Jeff. Number one, the reason we invited Jeff is because, number one, I've heard him speak a number of times. Um, I've read a lot of what he's written, but also we have one of our members, one of our leadership circle members, a superintendent, recommend it. He reached out in an email to me and followed up with a text and said, you know who we should be talking to in one of the leader chats if, is Jeff Duncan Andrade. That's why I connected with Jeff. I also had a member email me and say something to the effect of, wow, Jeff Duncan Andrade, he's very opinionated. Almost like a, wow, that's, that's, that's somewhat bold to have this conversation. So I want to be clear about something. If anything mentioned in any leader chat relative to us engaging an expert or a leader makes you feel uncomfortable, that's good. Good. There's nothing wrong with discomfort. In fact, do you know that we learn at our highest level when we are uncomfortable, which is a fact, as long as we feel safe? If you are uncomfortable and safe, you will be at your optimal state to learn. That is exactly what we should be doing as educators, not just for students, but also for ourselves. Our job is not to be comfortable. Now, I remember in the early 2000s, this is a long time ago for me, I was taking some summer courses at Harvard, and I remember this experience where um, I heard two speakers almost back to back. One was Alfie Cohn. Some of you may know Alfie Cohn. Um, and the other was Jeff Howard. Two very different speakers with very different perspectives. I would say almost opposite. And they brought in these intelligent, um, impressive thinkers to talk to us knowing that they were different because they wanted to create what I call a healthy state of disequilibrium for us. And it did just that. The conversation and the discourse it created for us as students in that room was incredible and is something that I remember to this day. So with that being the case, I so appreciate the conversation that we had with Jeff. And I know you will too. Enjoy.
Well, let's let's for a minute. Let's let's think about this. The leader, right? The leader of today. So many of them, um, I would I would say many of them have have a really solid foundation in their original why. They know why they went into the work. Um, they see some of the challenges that their community are facing. In the meantime, they are in a very precarious place, more now than ever. So they may see that uh, there requires a, a significant change, not dabbling, because dabbling can be dangerous, as you described, but significant change. But the dilemma is this, and one, they're doing their best to be as politically agnostic as possible because they have to be, because they serve often polarized communities and they have to support their community at large. And so they're doing their best. Then there's the political pressure uh, that they have to answer to because if they don't navigate it, well, then they won't be there, right? If they, if they don't find a way to somehow thread that needle, at least this is the way it feels, this is having empathy for the leader. It feels to them like if they don't thread that needle, then one, they won't be there. Some of that work will be lost and that traction and that momentum is just gone and it all starts over again, which by the way, happens over and over in public and in private schools um, and in charter schools, et cetera. It's not just one. And so, you know, how do we help the leader knowing that they, they understand that bold changes need to happen? They also know how dangerous those waters are and they have become more so so um, it, it creates a really interesting dilemma that, uh, that I, makes me worry about the leader, about the leaders that I know have an incredible heart for kids and want to do the right thing. It's just not an easy answer. And by the way, they're fighting this uphill battle with this system that is content driven, that is not necessarily kid driven. And, you know, the way we assess, the way that we report, the way we define what success is in schools and so forth, right? We can obviously there's books written on the topic so what would your what would your thoughts are on how to how to help in like this how do we have empathy for those leaders and help them so that you know they they can think um they got to think realistically to a degree because if i mean it, it, it's just tough is my point and so i'm just curious what your perspective on supporting them based upon where they're at what that would look like I mean, it is a real dilemma, um, and I've definitely experienced it as, as a leader. And I think that um, at the end of the day, um, and you know, this, this is a personal choice, right? But sure. at the end of the day, um, I'm, I'm willing to lose the gig to, to do what's right. Um, I, I don't, I don't want it written on my gravestone um, that I was politically agnostic and that I kept my job, but that I didn't do what was right for the most vulnerable and wounded kids and families. I'd rather say that this dude constantly got fired, but he always stood on the side of justice. He always, he, he, and, 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 and via that, he taught. And, and I think that's important for leaders to know that um, the, the decisions we make, the, you know, the, the hills we say we're willing to die on, um, that's pedagogy for kids. And when kids, particularly the most vulnerable and wounded ones, 
see us um, compromise them, compromise their needs um, under the auspices that, um, well, if I don't do it, then, then I'll lose my job. Or if I don't do it, then all these programs will go away. Uh, there's always a, you know, a rationale um, for the worst things that ever happened in history. Um, and I'm not saying that the decisions superintendents make are the worst things that ever happened in history, but, um, but they have a real impact in the community. And so I think that part of what we have to do um, is, you know, we were talking about this in the, in the pre-show that um, w one of the ways that you get this kind of compliance from leaders is, is that you create a leadership model of isolation. Right. And then you're super vulnerable. So, you know, some of the work that you all are doing, I think, is really important in that um, that you're you're busting up the isolation. But I think w the other thing that we have to um, support leaders with is models of people who didn't stay politically agnostic, models of people who found ways to take real political stances, because, first of all, I don't believe in in in, in the possibility of being politically agnostic. Right. Like it is a political position. So if you tell yourself you're being politically agnostic, you are actually being political. Like that is a political decision. And there's there's no other way to slice it. Like you are going to be political and to be politically agnostic is to side with the powerful. Right. Because to be politically agnostic means that you are in you are supporting the status quo. And if you're good with the status quo, then carry on. Right? I'm not. So yeah. I'm never going to be politically agnostic. Like I'm going to like make my stance really clear and, and then, and I'm not going to let myself get isolated. And that's really hard to do in school leadership positions. And so I think that, that part of the solution has to also be finding case studies, finding like real examples of leadership that is pushed back leadership that has found um, strategic ways to be disruptive to a status quo that is toxic because the alternative is that you're you you got hate your job anyway. Yeah, and I and I, I don't I I feel bad like I'm I'm painting this extreme picture that leaders are out there whining that they're going to lose their jobs and that's not the case. Um, I mean, I know some of the realities on, on turnover, that's for sure. But yeah. m m it's more about the leader thinking, if I lead, I want to make sure when I turn around, there are some people following, right? So it's, it's more about how they strategically make momentum to have progress as opposed to go so strong and so fast, they turn around and no one is there because they've lost them. Right, the yeah. leader's job is to bring people to walk with them. Sometimes in front, sometimes in the middle, and sometimes behind. Right, yeah. and so that that dance and that path, which is you know an artistic one, um, is just I just know it feels like you say maybe maybe dangerous is the wrong word. Maybe it just it's becoming even more isolating, which is, I think is why we believe in our work, but not less. I think that many times they feel as though regardless of their local relationships. I look around and sometimes I truly feel like I'm alone. Yeah. And the only way to make sure that that never happens, that, the, you know, that you turn around and you don't see, and, and, and ain't nobody behind you. Right. Is, is 
don't ever walk without other people. You know, and I think that there's a model, there's a Western model of leadership that we have have promoted that get, then gets recycled and re-promoted in schools where like you need to be this strong individual, right? Who's out front and, and then everybody else will come and follow you because you're charismatic and, right? And it's like, maybe that model is, is the model that has gotten us where we are. Yeah, maybe. And, and, and maybe we need to think about a very different kind of model, right? That where you can't get isolated as a leader because you're not the one who's always out front. And, and I think that the, the, the leaders, whether you're talking about like um, building leaders or like systems leaders that have uh, some of the most longevity are the ones who have really, really strong support from uh, the community. Right. And, and, and that they're, they're spending very little time in the boardroom and a, and a whole lot more time on the streets. And I think that, that that's some of your best armor against, um, against the blowback and it's not, you know, no armors impervious, but, but, but I think that, um, I don't know, like I always felt a lot and, and I, you know, like I've made the mistake of like, you charging ahead and like, you know, and it's just doing way too much based on this like vision of even sometimes who the community said they wanted me to be. And, um, and I think in my best moments as a leader, um, I've been you know, to, to use your tagline, like I've been in circle yeah. instead of, instead of in the front row. Yeah. And, and in those moments is when I felt, not only the best about my leadership, but also um, the most protected. That that this this community is um, its voice is powerful, and I don't think our community always knows how powerful its voice is because we don't always put them in a position where um, where the power of their voice is operationalized. And if we norm that in our leadership strategies right not just with our staff right but i'm talking about literally like the community um then then i think that you have um one you feel a lot more well and and i think a lot of our leaders are sick um because of the way in which the the, the job puts them in these incredibly isolated positions where they've always got a target on their like three targets, forehead, chest, back, right? Yeah. Where you, how you want to get it. Right. So I think that, um, the more we can support leaders to really understand how do you, um, how do you disrupt some of that training and some of that instinct that you have as a leader, um, to, to live out that tagline that you have, like, what does that actually mean? Yeah. That, that, you know, that, that, circles are better than rows and what does that mean like like literally what does that look like on the ground as a systems leader or as a building leader and because i think that that it makes sense and people feel that they're like yeah like i agree but and this is one of the things i've had work really hard at in my work is to not get overly like theoretical and philosophical. And I think theory and philosophy are important, but to ground truth it 
right? So for every theory, right, every philosophy that I share, I always try to give folks like real time look-ins on, and this is what it actually looks like on the ground. And, and, and the goal isn't to, you know, give them a playbook or to like carbon copy it, but instead, you know, it's that old adage, seeing is believing. And I think people hear ideas like that and they want to believe, but they, they literally can't make a mental picture in, in their head about what it would look like in their own practice. And, and, and I do think that that is something that is missing from our field is, is really good use of case studies. And like we tend to do case studies around failure, but to, to look at one, to do a better job of using case studies around good practice and two, doing a better job of coaching about, cause then, then what I see is people they're looking for, for like a cheap fix, right? So it's like, oh, this worked in San Antonio and I'm in Compton. So like, I'll just bring that program here. I, there's a real skill to being able to understand what made it work in San Antonio. And yeah, communities are too nuanced for cut and paste. Um, right. right, they're too complicated. To, as you know, it, it's depending on where you're standing, right? That really dictates strategy. And yep. I, I think you're right, Jeff. It's funny that I, when we talk about our concept and, and people circling up, people don't disagree. They shake their head. They said, absolutely. The, the yeah. dilemma that they're having is the behavior. Because even, and then they just get dragged back onto what Heifetz would say is the dance floor, right? They have the hardest time walking up to the balcony and really providing themselves with an intentional effort on, if I'm going to be a good leader, if I'm going to be strategic and bold and do best for kids, I have to have community myself. And I have to have, you know, an ability to know how to work with those I serve, which, by the way, is not necessarily, quote, traditional. And yet, we continue to produce this traditional thing. And, and I, you know, I'm, I have to be respectful of, of your time. So let me ask you this. As you said, we try to do less talking at. This, this leader chat is the one thing we do, which is pushing content to people. But we often try to circle people up. If, if you and I were around a table and with other leaders, principals, assistant superintendents, superintendents, um, based upon this conversation. Um, and, you know, think of the pragmatic brass tacks elevator speech. What advice would you want to leave them with? Well, I think a lot of the stuff that we see in the, the systems change research um, is not being effectively utilized. Um, and so I see a lot of the um, leadership models of like how to create change, um, repeating mistakes of the past. And so what I encourage leaders to do um, is to think about, you know, so I'm, I'm you know, next door to Silicon Valley um, and it's, you know, arguably one of the most innovative spaces that we've seen in our time. And 
and I've had the opportunity to learn a lot from the leaders um, of some of the biggest organizations down there. And, and one of the things that was very striking to me in a conversation I had with, with a group of them was they were saying that one of the most valuable commodities that they have is failure. And, um, and, I, and I thought about how different it is in education that we, we duck, dodge and deny failure. Um, and, and I think the difference is, I mean, also understanding the significance of their incredible resources and budget, right? But one sure. of the things that they do very intentionally is that they structure, um, they, they, they invest in structure that treats failure as learning. And, um, and, and they do it in a way that's very different than how we do it in education. So I firmly believe that our um, evaluative approach in education is deeply flawed, not only because I think we're measuring a lot of the wrong things. So we're measuring in education what psychometricians refer to as lag indicators of development test scores, grades, attendance, right? Um, and there's really powerful research in fields outside of education, like neuroscience, like psychology, like social epidemiology, like physiology, um, that actually has um, had huge breakthroughs in the last few decades around what are the lead indicators. And what those fields continually say is that the lead indicators are the indicators of wellness. And the problem is that schools, um, very few schools have good wellness indicators. And when they do, it's often like the healthy kids survey, which is like aggregate data. And you can't get granular with it. So you can't tell me how, how well an individual kid is. But um, so I think that, that one of the things that is important for leaders is to really think about what they're measuring and whether or not those measures, that data input that they're getting back um, is actually a driver of the lag indicators. I'm not saying we shouldn't measure, you know, grades or reading or writing or any of that. I, I think we should. Um, but if we really want to create systems change, what, what the research clearly shows us is that you, um, you have to have good process data. And what we have in schools is a lot of outcome data. The second thing I would say that is connected to this conversation or the, the um, connection to Silicon Valley is Silicon Valley does what are called sprints, right? Yeah. So they, I, longitudinal data is important, right? But that's all we're looking at, right? And so by the time we start looking at data, it, one, it's the wrong data because it's outcome data. And two, it's gone data, meaning that the, the the kids who like produce that data are gone like they they they're on to another level and now we're making changes at the level they were just at right but it's a new group of kids yeah whereas silicon valley they're looking at learning every four to six weeks right and 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 so they're making smaller tweaks right and 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 getting more learning. Because when you think about it, if you just, if we boil it down to a classroom and we have a teacher evaluated at the semester mark, um, there's so much, um, like does that teacher actually remember what happened in the first week or the second week or the third? No. 
And so there's so much learning that's lost just by the way we design our, our cycles of learning in, in schools and in leadership. So the, the, the only other thing that I would add um, is that the other mistake that the systems change research is really focused on that I see made over and over again in schools is that we try to do systems change. And what, what we see the most traction around um, is, um, is pilot work. So if a, if a systems leader wants to change something in their, in their district or a building leader wants to change something in their school, the way that I tend to coach them is to say, okay, first figure out who the coalition of the willing is. Okay, start because you, you need, if you're gonna create change, you gotta get early wins. And one of the ways to get early wins is to have is to have choice buy-in, right? So who wants to pilot this? We're not going to do this system-wide yet, right? We're going to do this small and we're going to learn a lot. We're going to do sprints. We're going to learn what does it take to actually, let's say, implement ethnic studies. And what maybe fail. And maybe fail, right? No. You, if you're not failing, what does that say? If you're not failing, you're not trying? Like, right? I don't know how much I agree with that. But, but – Yes, there's. It's not failure though. Like we, that, we. It's not on. failure, right? It's just. It's just a word that changes. Kind of, it changes the paradigm. Our mental kind of shift in how we look at efforts. Um, yeah, we're gonna do this small, and we're going to learn. Right, we're going to learn what works, and we're going to learn what doesn't work, and out of that, we're going to create a third space. Right, and then back to your thing about leading and seeing nobody behind you, that then those early adopters are your recruiters for phase two. Yeah. And this, this, this is why you're so attracted to coaching. I mean, when you talk about gone data, this is, this is the difference. This is why coaches can often really inform great practice because it's, it's constant feedback, yeah. right? It's based upon right then, come yeah. here. Let me, let me show you something. Let me tell you something. Let me show you. We, you, you zigged, you should have zagged, and this is why. It's yep. constant. You see that in, you see that in musicians, uh, yep. some of our, our teachers of music. It's constant, real-time data based upon a goal and based upon believing in the, the, the abilities of that athlete or that musician to do great things, yep. right? Yeah. And that's my theory of you is why you're so attracted to coaches is that's the kind of data you're describing as opposed to um, I'm going to you probably coined this, but gone data, which is pristine. So, yeah, yeah. And, and I think sports also makes great use of video in ways that we don't in in education. Um, I mean, how many leaders, how many superintendents like videotape? their board meetings right or their you know um any meeting right and then go back and look at the video to really understand like was i the leader i want to be in right in those interactions and th there's a lot i think that we can learn from sports that gives us quicker more meaningful feedback um that that leads to real improvement and leads to people feeling like i'm getting better you know, that, that's what gets athletes to run through walls for coaches. Yeah. Literally, right? Is that they feel like I'm getting better. Like this is painful and there's a cost, but I see the value 
right? And for in, in our field, it's just, it's a whole lot of pain, right? A whole lot of cost and not often, you know, a, a whole lot of evidence. The further you get away from the classroom, the less and less evidence that you have that what you're doing is really impacting kids' lives. And as you said, like a lot of people that are crazy enough to jump into educational leadership, they do it because they love kids. Yeah. But they get further and further away from that affirmation. And, and that's something we have to help leaders with, right? That we have to get them more regular feedback that what they're doing matters and that good stuff is happening in their schools and in their districts, what you called in our pre-show room, what was it? Room 217? Room 217. Yeah. 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 I want every superintendent, right, having a room 217 as a reminder that no matter how chunky it gets, that there are spaces in the system that you are supporting and leading that are really doing right by kids. And don't ever lose sight of that, because if you do, then 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 they win. Yeah. Right. And it doesn't need to be that way. It doesn't. Jeff, you're so generous with your time and your 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 passion and your knowledge. Um, truly is, and you've heard this from more than me, uh, has inspired just so many. And I, I really thank you for your work and your time. And I appreciate this. I know our members will appreciate this. And anything that, that we can do um, in, in, in support of you, please feel free to reach out. Uh, this, is, this has been great for me. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. I appreciate it. Ladies and gentlemen, um, I, I could talk to Jeff uh, for a long, long time. He brought up so many topics that made me want to dive in and jump and keep going. Um, hours and hours, um, I, I, I could talk to him. And so we just I just really, really appreciate um, him being here with us today. I know you feel the same way. So uh, our, our hearts go out to Jeff Andrade, uh, Duncan Andrade. And ladies and gentlemen, teachers, leaders, be well.